Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, December 20th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary, snoring once again, begging you, pleading with you, in, in, in invoking every form of guilt that I know how to invoke to get you to consider commentary for your end of year giving. Commentary of 501c3 nonprofit institution publishes monthlies, Commentary's monthly magazine. Uh, produces the daily website and, of course, releases this podcast on a daily basis. Uh, it is uh, a blessing that we have uh, many subscribers who uh, who support us and advertisers who support us, but we still have a deficit. We need to close it, and we need your support to do so. If you are a listener to this podcast and you profit from listening to this podcast, please consider commentary for your end of year giving. Go to www.commentary.org. Donate. It's not free to do this. We do this five days a week, 50 to 52 weeks a year. Um, we're going to do a special week of podcasts next week uh, off the news. We're going to do sort of our, our favorite or most interesting or uh, most hated or most anything cultural products, uh, works that we engaged with in 2021, uh, short podcasts on a daily basis during which I will again be importuning you to support Commentary Inc. and our 501c3 nonprofit mission to strengthen America and the West, to support our democratic institutions, to be a bulwark against anti-Semitism, and to support the state of Israel. So again, www.commentary.org slash donate. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um, so, you know, last week uh, I did my little solo performance of Randy Travis's I Told You So because I thought that it was understood that the Build Back Better bill was dead uh, when it was said that it was being shelved, tabled, shelved for the next uh, whatever, through the next period or whatever. Um, and that that was understood to mean the death of the Build Back Better bill. Well, we got another death. We got the death, more a second death yesterday, Sunday morning, when Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, Democrats, went on Fox News Sunday and said, I am not supporting this bill, period. It's a no. I am a no. Now, I thought he said that. I thought they understood that he had said that. I thought that he basically made it clear that he was going to be a no from March onward. And I don't know how many times he can say no. So finally, he said, no, he said, I'm never going to vote for this thing. And you would think that this was a shock and a surprise. And a, people were saying this is a death. This is really a reeling blow. I mean, the, it's a blow to the Biden White House. What a blow. I mean, it came out of nowhere. A surprise blow. I was on uh meet the press yesterday with a reporter from the PBS NewsHour who said, you know, this took the White House entirely by surprise and it was a terrible blow. How could it have taken them by surprise? I don't understand how it could take them by surprise. We knew that Manchin wasn't going to vote for this bill, you know, in July. And, and before then, he said it would be a trillion, he could only support a bill up to a trillion five. Every calculation of this bill has it coming in at a minimum at two trillion, and if you actually extend it out to its honest, rational life to four to five trillion, he wasn't going to support it. This is all crazy. It's a death blow. It's a death blow. And the White House, interestingly, has decided to take the gloves off and go after Mansion's jugular. 
and say he's a liar. He lied to them. Only last week he came to them with a document that sort of suggested what might be done to create a Build Back Better bill that would work. We don't know what was in that document. I think it's entirely plausible that he did produce such a document in which he said, let's do these four things and nothing else. And that what wasn't in the document was everything that the left wants, like climate change, like these trillions of dollars in climate change spending and, you know, permanent child care, whatever. Um, so I just want to point out two things. One is Sam Stein, um, old friend of mine from the Huffington Post, whose mother was my mother's best friend in high school, said uh, that, that this is it for the Earth's climate. This is it. This bill, that's it. Goodbye. Goodbye, Earth's climate. If this bill didn't pass, the Earth was going to is the Earth was going to survive if the bill passed. And now the Earth is going to die. You know, what's um, really what, what's the funniest part of this? Because you're absolutely right. Everybody who's been following this knows that this this should not have been a shock. But the reason the Biden administration is spinning it as a shock and, and all the sort of progressive left in particular is overreacting wildly to the press. It's like they want to portray him as the Grinch who stole Christmas. Right. Like right before Christmas. Look what he did. He's going to destroy the planet. But the, the hilarious thing, if you watch, it's like he's the Grinch who taught civics. Like he's reminding those this crazy progressives like you actually have to convince the moderates in your party to go along with this spending. And it's not just me who's opposed to it. And I think cinema also signaled that there were many other senators not happy with the with the final version. So it, it it's a way for them to try to spin their own defeat. And it's a crushing defeat for the Biden administration coming at just a moment where they need a win. So I think that's all that that's all that's why they're going after Manchin. It's a it's a perfectly fine 48 hour media strategy. It's very bad long term strategy. No, can I just point out how stupid they are? I mean, I'm sorry, here we are, and I, I am now obliged to say that the Democratic Party, as it is now constituted in Washington, is stupid. They had a big victory. They had a victory in the in the summer. They got the infrastructure bill. It's a huge bill. It's a huge bill. Two trillion dollars in infrastructure spending, six hundred million dollars in new uh, six hundred billion dollars in new spending. Huge success. Then they decided to hold that bill hostage, a bill that passed with with uh, 19 Republican votes in the Senate, that they would hold that bill hostage because it was so popular to force the passage of the far less popular, far more expensive Build Back Better bill. Right then, they traded defeat for victory. They decided that they would rather lose than win. They needed a win back in the summer also. And so they spent three months on this fruitless effort and then finally came back where they were at the beginning and passed the infrastructure bill unconnected to the larger Build Back Better bill. And what are people saying? I just want to read you know one thing in the Mike Allen uh, Axios AM newsletter. Uh, uh, Hold on. Where is this? I am so sorry. The big picture progressives were worried all year that they would whittle down their spending ambitions to bring Manchin aboard only to have him pull the rug once the negotiations got real. They were right. As soon as President Biden signed the infrastructure bill last month, they lost all leverage. They lost all leverage with whom? What leverage did they have? They had leverage on themselves in the House. They had leverage on no one in the Senate. They didn't have leverage. They weren't right. They were wrong. They were wrong to hold up the infrastructure bill 
and to make it look like the passage of this gigantic bill was basically half a loaf and not worth the paper it was printed on. Am I missing something? No. The fact that this is driving the news cycle today, the death of Build Back Better when it died last week, is indicative of how deluded the people who supported this bill always were about its viability and its prospects. <clears throat> they just refused to accept or acknowledge the obstacles before them. When the, um, I remember saying this at the time, that when the infrastructure bill passed the, <clears throat> the, the House, then it was time to pass it immediately. And that would have lubricated the gears for the passage of Build Back Better. It really would have at the time, it would have cleared the path to make this a less expensive prospect. And then over the course of the next two or three months, it just became, once again, taught a conversation about how expensive the Build Back Better bill was. It wasn't about how we had just shaved a trillion off of it, which would have you know, created a narrative there about how it's less expensive. Um, it just became a, a two-month conversation about how expensive the $3.5 trillion version of it was and how that was unacceptable to moderates and how that was also unacceptable to, uh, unacceptable to progressives. Nobody liked it. So we talked for three months about how this thing was terrible in various ways that it was terrible, both of which were incompatible to the people who thought it was terrible. Um, but it just got harder every day to pass the thing. And the iron subsequently cooled. And then, yes, when we had it just got colder and colder. And then when we got this notion that it was shelved, they were still deluding themselves into thinking, well, it can be you know, brought off the shelf in 2022 presuming a lot of assumptions about how the political environment might be more favorable to them. Who knows what they were thinking? Cause it was all just, um, it was all just a psychological posture. They were just trying to convince themselves of a reality that, that didn't exist. And if they had to listen to any of us, if this conversation wasn't so insular that progressives in the press who are wildly overrepresented in the press, were only talking to themselves about this thing. They would have heard some dissension some understanding of how legislative affairs actually work in this kind of environment. And maybe they wouldn't be as surprised as they are today. But because this conversation is limited to progressives, for progressives, exclusively conducted by progressives, they find themselves shocked when someone else enters the chat. I think they did hear the comments. They just didn't believe. They thought we had it all wrong. You know, the, all the criticisms were met with, you, you just don't understand how the sausage is made. This is this is the process. It looks ugly, but but this isn't a horse race. This is this is how it's it's all done. And the amazing thing about how they got here, starting with John's point about holding one bill hostage to the other is it was all showboating, really. Right. It was like, look, we're going to do this, then we're going to do that, and we're going to shove this down your face. And yeah, I know you're saying it's it's we can't do it, but wait till you see how much we can do. And, and we're going to we're going to tell you that at every turn. Right. But the writing was on the wall once that framework was released in October when Joe Biden came out and his very first points in favor of this legislation were all conservative talking points. Oh, it's going to it's going to arrest inflation. It's going to it's going to address the deficit. We're going to reduce the deficit. It's going to get our fiscal house in order. All these conservative talking points, which suggested they knew what was in the water. And they knew that the environment was getting less favorable to them, but they didn't want to acknowledge it. Well, he he knew or so, someone around him knew. But I don't I, it's it's clear at this point that what he knows and what he thinks um, has very little direct effect on the rest of the party and where they're at. Well, that's why we have to get back to the stupid theory. And I'm sorry to be so like, I, I don't know, ad hominem or dismissive or something like that. 
But here's what happened. A gigantic piece of legislation was separated into two. And that part of the legislation that could get bipartisan support got, relatively speaking, an enormous amount of bipartisan support. And the bill passed through the Senate in the summer. Enormous legislative triumph for the Democrats. First major piece of bipartisan legislation of any real size, except for an emergency measure or two, in, I don't know, a decade, two decades. And they ruined it. They spoiled it. They didn't march down the road, you know, in the Music Man with the 76 trombones behind them. They ruined it. They said, this isn't good enough. It's not enough. This isn't what we want. We want more. We want different. We want better. And you know what? We're going to stab ourselves in the eyes and then walk around blindly yelling so that we can get what we want while we have blinded ourselves. That's stupid. It's delusional, but it is also stupid. You don't take a bird you take a bird in the hand. That is, that is the lesson of life. You take a bird in the hand. It's worth two in the bush. It's, you can't get the second bird. The logic of this entire political setup in 2021 was they weren't going to get a $6 trillion, $3 trillion, $2 trillion big spending bill unattached to COVID or any emergency. They weren't going to get it because there was no consensus in the United States for it whatsoever. Joe Manchin said no because his state, he is a Democratic senator from a state that voted for Trump by 40 points. It's not that he's the one person holding it up, right? 47% of the country voted for Trump. It's, you know, the Senate was 50 50. And only 50-50 by, result, by the results of a very unique and weird situation. They didn't read the political situation right when it was obvious, manifestly obvious, how to read the political situation. Like, it's not rocket science to say you're not LBJ if you don't have a 188-seat majority in the House, but you have a five-seat majority in the House. LBJ had a 188-seat majority in the House and 69 Democratic senators. They had 50 Democratic senators and a five-seat majority in the House. You can't transform the country when the country doesn't want to be transformed. It will stop you from doing it. But there's both stupidity and hubris at work, right? And I think we saw both play out beautifully uh, in, in all the remarks that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made to the media this weekend. I mean, she said ridiculous things. She's like, well, now, you know, we really have to take the kid gloves off because we've got to take on the old boys club of the Senate. And, and you know, she, she speculated that she had just as many constituents as Joe Manchin. So isn't this unfair that he can stop this piece of legislation that she liked? No, he's got a more than a million constituents than her. And, and you know, th this, this sort of, this is anti-democratic Democratic rhetoric, which doesn't get talked about in the media because they only want to see that coming from the right. But when Democrats are thwarted by a process that was designed to thwart uh, groups of legislators who cannot get a majority, they want to change the rules. They want to get rid of the filibuster. They want to do all these things. They want they want to start arguing that the Senate's undemocratic because it's, you know, via state and and these big states and small states are, aren't equally represented. 
which by the way, yes, let's talk, let's have Bernie Sanders speak to that. Who's whose constituency numbers are what like Staten islands. I mean, this is ridiculous, but they, they, go to that. That's their safe space now. But it is corrosive because it undermines how our system was legitimately designed to function. The system worked this time. They don't like the result, but the system worked. You know, the system really worked because it's not as though we didn't spend a preposterous amount of money this year that our children and grandchildren are going to be paying for for the next 75 years. We spent $2 trillion on coronavirus relief, and now we spend another trillion or two trillion on infrastructure. Like, that's a lot of money. That's more money than was ever spent before in one year. I'm sorry. Like, get a grip. What's wrong with you people? I thought that the dumbest thing that was ever said in American politics by somebody who then ended up astonishingly running a think tank for a while was when Jim DeMint, the senator from South Carolina, the Republican senator from South Carolina, said, he would rather have 30 rock-ribbed, really conservative Republican senators than 60 rhinos. It's like, really? Do you understand what politics is about? If you have 30 senators and they have 70, you don't win anything ever. Well, you idiot. They're not like, done... I understand you don't want to, you don't want to negotiate. You don't want you don't like it that your purity is invaded by people who don't believe everything that you believe, but compromise and having to accept that you get half a loaf, that is both basically A, being an adult, and B, being a, a, a person in politics. So it's no wonder he quit, went to Heritage, and got fired. But at least you idiot. can understand and the now intellectual... now they are all idiots in the Democratic Party. At least you can understand the intellectual temptation behind that kind of stupid remark. It's that, you know, you want to be surrounded by people who are ideologically as pure as you. You want an ideologically pure party. And whether if that means truncation, then that's what it means. It's a stupid sentiment because you're you know, sacrificing your own capacity to get things done. But at least you get the idea that homogeneity is tempting in some way. Um, Democrats haven't really demonstrated anything remotely approaching something that could be considered a rational, albeit emotional approach to this defeat at least if we can glean from what Senator Schumer is saying this morning, quote, the Senate will, in fact, consider the Build Back Better Act very early in the new year so that every member of this body has the opportunity to make their position known on the Senate floor, not just on television. We'll keep voting on it until we get something done. So they're going to try to hold a cloture vote, I guess, and debate on it um, with the with the strategy that maybe a miracle happens, maybe they muscle them, maybe they hold a vote open until it fails. I don't understand where the value is there, but it seems to be an extension of their approach to negotiating with Manchin and Cinema, among others, over the course of the last eight or nine months, which is that they don't really mean it. They're just, they're well, just negotiating, or maybe they're just kidding. I don't know what they're thinking, but the idea here is that they can just continue to muscle them until they eventually break has proven itself unfounded. And yet so, they're still doing it. So maybe it's rope-a-dope, right? Rope-a-dope was the famous strategy that Muhammad Ali pursued against, was it George Foreman? The idea that he would let Foreman batter him in the early rounds and tire Foreman out and then go after him with quick jabs and take Foreman down. The problem here is that they're the dope. So it's like, hit me. 
I lost last week. Hit me again. I lost Sunday. Hit me again. I'm going to lose the first week of January when we go back to debate this again. And then I'll lose again. And then I'll get punched again. And every two weeks, there'll be a story about how Build Back Better lost. And then it lost. And it's still losing. And it keeps losing. That is idiocy. And, you know, we have a piece by Matt Connetti. He talked about it last week on the podcast. It's in, it's on our website, commentary.org, called Disaster of the Senate, about Schumer as majority leader. If he pursues this strategy, he will be revealed to have been the worst, least competent, and most demented Senate majority leader in our lifetimes. You don't pursue losing strategies. You get you you turn them around. Now, if you want to take a bill, make a hundred dollar hundred billion dollar bill that does a little child care and call it build back better and then get it passed. And then you can say build back better passed. That's a strategy, right? You, you, you take something, you take something very little, you rename it something big and then you pass it. And then you can say that you got what you wanted, but that's not even what he's talking about here. As far as I can tell, he wants it on the record for every Senator who does not want to cast a vote on build back better. And let's, let's enumerate who they are. Mark Kelly of Arizona, Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire. Uh, I mean, there are probably, I, I can't even think of it. There are probably four or five Democrat senators. Cortez Masto. Cortez Masto in, um, in uh, Nevada, uh, who do not want to cast a vote for or against Build Back Better. And Schumer's going to make them in order to make Alexandria Ocasio Cortez feel good. That's craziness. There's also another extraordinarily stupid thing happening here, um, which is that they keep discussing all this uh, framed in such a way where um, Joe Manchin has single handedly sunk the president's agenda. Right. Uh, first of all, it's not true, as 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 we've been saying, as everyone then counters that. The Republicans are also part of, of the Senate, you know, uh, uh, so there, there are there are their their opinions like it or not. Um, but also this announces broadcasts the the fact of Biden's weakness. They're saying the president is not in charge. He can this can this is being sunk by 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 one senator. He's the, the president is irrelevant. And in doing this, you foreclose the possibility that there's going to be a change in in tactics here, a change in direction. I wish that this was a, an, you know, an object lesson in the superiority of Article One. I kind of doubt it, but that'd, that'd be lovely if that was the takeaway. Most likely, it's the takeaway is <clears throat> that you know, the pop the the political culture will deem Joe Joe Manchin this you know unique destroyer, you know, the you know the something something akin to the Bhagavad Vita. But this is also his you know, his argument, like they're making his argument for him. This thing was not favored in in West Virginia. It was like two thirds of voters didn't like it, didn't want it. So Joe Biden gets to go back home to West Virginia and say, Joe, Joe Manchin, yeah. Joe Manchin, I'm sorry, say, you know, they're, they're saying I killed Joe Biden's agenda. I didn't really, but I killed this and you're welcome. Look, we're being nicer to them than the liberal media are. Here's what I'm saying. This was never going to happen. They just don't have the troops, they don't have the support, they don't have enough numbers in the House and the Senate to pull something like this off. It is. It was unreasonable to expect Biden to be LBJ or JFK. Maybe they talked him into it. Maybe John Meacham 
blew his fairy dust magic and Doris Kearns Goodwin blathered in his ear. And then the McNeil Lara News Hour theme song played and Michael Beschloss showed him a photo of Fala dancing on the White House lawn and Biden got stars in his eyes. But the simple fact of the matter is Biden came into office with a decent personal majority of, you know, four and a half million votes, uh, you know, four uh, percent to 10 million votes. Uh, 80 electoral votes, but he didn't get much in the House and, and the House. Actually, they lost votes in the House. They lost seats in the House and they and they captured the Senate. They barely captured the Senate because of Trump's bizarre behavior. And it was too much to expect that Biden could be this transformative figure and he should be given a pass for not being a transformative figure. That is not what the that was not what the order of battle of 2021 was going to allow him to be. It is Democrats and liberals who are saying he will have failed because he should have been that transformative figure and he just couldn't pull it off. Look at what they're doing now in terms of stupidity. Not that I I really I know I sound like look, I'm 60 years old. I shouldn't be using the word stupid and idiot as much as I do. But now they're pivoting to voting rights. Right. And there's all this they should have talked about voting rights in the first place. This the whole sort of nationalization of voting rights as opposed to the local control of voting. But they can't get it. There was a reason they didn't go there in the first place. They need 60 votes in the Senate to get cloture on any bill. The reason that Build Back Better could be voted on with 51 votes, meaning all 50 senators and Kamala Harris, is that it was a budget bill. And budget bills have different rules. But this this bill, the voting rights bill, isn't a budget bill and cannot be voted on under the reconciliation rules. And so they table it's also not a voting rights bill. <laughs> we should I, I, make that I, clear. I agree with you. We're I'm just, just sort saying, of acceding to their, right. you know, to their, yeah, okay, their language. Right, to the semantic infiltration. Right. But whatever they want to call it, like the, you know, the 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 nationalization of voting law bill. Can't pass. So it was right that they stopped talking about it. Now he's going to start talking about it so he can have another defeat. Is this what he's going to do? His entire presidency is like. Be done. He's going to tilt at windmills. I mean, maybe that's noble. Don Quixote's noble. He's also crazy. He's a lunatic. He needs to be in an insane asylum. He is in an insane asylum. What am I missing here? They're pivoting from one disaster to another. This is their idea of changing the subject. How did this happen? How did this happen? It's just a fascinating aspect. And I, I want to go back to, to Mike Allen's newsletter because maybe this helps explain it. Okay. So Mike Allen's newsletter, one big thing, that's always his lead, Manchin's next move. If Joe Manchin bolts the Democratic Party, he'd be more likely to switch to independent and caucus with the Democrats, then become a Republican. People close to him tell Axios. Why would he bolt the Democratic Party? Who's talking about Joe Manchin bolting the Democratic Party? He's the most powerful Democrat in the country outside of the president, number one. And number two, he is the leader of his party in his state and has been its governor and its senator for many years. And why would he bolt? They, they're talking about him bolting. He's not. Anger at Manchin coursed through the party yesterday, and some Democrats with races next year pivoted from attacking GOP rivals to going after Manchin. What a great strategy. What a fantastic way to run for, you know, it's like, vote for me. I hate, I hate my fellow Democrat from West Virginia. Brilliant. That's, that's, that's just a fantastic running strategy. 
why it matters. Mansion surprise body blow. Surprise again, right? To President Biden's Build Back Better agenda set off new speculation among Democrats, including in the White House, that he may leave the party next year. Axios's Hans Nichols and Elena Treen report the timing and venue for da ba da ba ba. Manchin has consistently denied any interest in leaving the party, telling reporters in October, I can't control the rumors and it's bullshit capital. The big picture, progressives are worried all year. What we're watching, many Democrats told Axios yesterday, they don't believe that Build Back Better is truly dead. So they're saying he's going to leave the party. He's not going to leave the party. They're saying it's his fault. He's saying he always said that he was not going to vote for a bill this size. They're saying they're going to get Build Back Better again, and they're not. And um, I, uh, what is going on? What is going on? How, how this is like the worst politics I've ever seen. Well, it's childish, right? Like he's basically like the parent who tells the kid, "You got to eat your vegetables at dinner, or you're not getting dessert." And the kid's like, "I'm going to get dessert. I'm going to get dessert because I like I know what the dessert is. I want the dessert. It's sitting there, and I'm going to get the dessert." And just keeps insisting while not eating the vegetables. Parents hold firm, you know, totally consistent. Nope, I'm not going to have histrionics. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm just, you got to eat the vegetables. We'll negotiate about maybe four carrots versus, you know, eight carrots or whatever. But we're you got to eat the vegetables. And he just kept saying that. And they just kept insisting that they could have their way. It's childishness. It's not politics. It's not real negotiation. It's performance. And it does. I We bring him up a lot, but he's absolutely right about this. Yuval's point about the platform versus the institution. And, and I do think in this case, this is an example of more and more Democrats using the using Congress as a platform for their own sort of presence, not understanding how what it means to actually be a legislator. He understands that he's doing it. Can I yes and you in an improv style here, which is it's not just that he's the parent. It's he's saying. You can't have the dessert because you're a type one diabetic. This is going to send you to the hospital. I have to stop you from eating this dessert. You think you want this dessert, but this dessert is going to overload your system you don't have a, you don't have any insulin and we're going to have to take you to the hospital and you might die so i so it's awful for me to have to be the you know to have to be the the guy who says no but i got to say no and then there's a tantrum and then there's a i will eat it and i will and that, and 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 the parent has put a lock on the on the pantry so that so that the kid can't eat the sugar and go into a diabetic shock like that. That is what this bill is. It was going to be two to four trillion dollars on top of the four trillion dollars in new spending we already spent this year. And how much was it in 2020? Six, four trillion, six trillion total. When you consider the one point nine trillion we spent in February for covid relief. So six trillion total for COVID. we've spent six trillion in new dollars since the pandemic. Does anybody understand? The entire gross national product of the United States is $22 trillion. I mean, just that's all. And all that spending is deficit spending. None of that is paid for. So uh, welcome. Welcome to the diet. We're already in diabetic shock, but this would already, you know, we're already without knowing it, but that really would have been the final blow. That's the coma. Uh. You know, would understand this analogy. Our friend David Bonson got he got five days to go get his book. There's no free lunch. 250 economic truths as your stocking stuffer, your Christmas present, your end of year present. 
your gift to your employee, whatever. David takes 250 economic truths, gives them a page, uh, supports them with great quotes uh, and connects the three fundaments of our society, economics, liberty, and human flourishing, and shows how they, how they must interweave for us to be truly free, for us to flourish as people, and for us to earn our keep in a way that uh, you know, uh, gives us uh, dignity and provides us purpose and uh, puts food on our table. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, produced by David Monson and the Monson Group, the the bicoastal multi-billion dollar financial services and marketing company that we've been talking to you about. Get it today. Great Christmas present. There's no free lunch. B-A-H-N-S-E-N, available at Amazon, Barnes Noble, wherever. David Bonson, the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and marketing industry. Um, so... Can we talk about uh, Omicron or not? Do we have to talk about Omicron? Every yeah, people, there, there we is, are, it's gone. We're insane. The country's insane. And that's just all there is. We've gone insane. Welcome to insanity. Can we, can we talk, we should talk briefly about a weird messaging strategy that White House is now taking because in its, uh, a readout of a, of a White House uh, discussion over the weekend, uh, they said, uh, the guy who's their czar said, we're intent on not letting Omicron disrupt work in school. You've done the right thing and we'll get you through this talking to the vaccinated. But then he says this for the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourselves, your families and the hospitals. You may soon overwhelm. I'm like, oh, that got dark. Like, <laughs> like again, like the, this is the White House messaging. So it's we can say that because, you know, we're, we have very strong opinions about vaccination. But the White House is still supposed to be trying to persuade the unvaccinated to go get their shots and the already vaccinated to get their boosters. I don't feel like this is the way as the Mandalorian would very say. much like build back better <clears throat> insofar as they're only talking to each other and at each other to the exclusion of everybody else, because only if you were talking to the most radicalized of public health experts, could you look at this kind of messaging and think it was anything other than fan service. It certainly doesn't help you get people vaccinated who are holdouts they're, if they're even listening at all, they're looking at that and saying, well, let's give that a couple of weeks and see if that materializes, because it most likely won't. Over this weekend, some 40,000 people in New York City tested positive. On a day-to-day -day basis, they had like 22,000 tests. What did hospitals say? We can handle it. For real. You have people, hospital, hospital administrators who are saying, listen, we don't need to increase capacity. We don't need to engage in any sort of mitigation measures that are extraordinary beyond what we're already engaging in. We have the capacity to the extent we've seen an uptick in admissions, their catch and release. It's just you know, general, very quick treatment. And hours later, you're released from the hospital. We're not seeing, this is quotes from hospital administrators in New York City. We're not seeing what we've been seeing in previous waves when it comes to hospitalization. Remember what the point of all these mitigation measures were extraordinary interventions into American social and economic life. It was to preserve hospital capacity because when hospitals collapse, then you'd have people dying in the streets, right? That's just quaint. That notion is just adorable that we even had that as our policy objective. It's not the policy objective anymore. There is no policy objective anymore. The mitigation measures are in means and an end unto themselves. My favorite new talking point is so the symptoms of Omicron may feel a lot like just like a regular old cold, but don't be deceived. It's not a regular old cold. It's 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 COVID. 
If all the symptoms feel like a regular cold, experientially, it's just a cold. And then they say, well, fine, okay, but then you could give it to someone else and you would give them a cold. It's the same thing. Regarding the, the sort of end game and, and where, what, what we're doing all this for, I think it's important that we bring up what uh, Fauci said over the weekend when asked about airplane travel, right? Will we get to the point, he was asked, where we won't have to be on airplanes with masks? No, he said. I don't have the full quote in front of me. It just occurred to me as Noah was talking. No, I don't, I don't think that, that's, that's not going to happen. I have it. Go ahead. Uh, I don't think so. He was uh, said in response to John Carl, who noted that in front of Congress, uh, Congressional Subcommittee over the uh, last week, two major CEOs of airlines said that they don't believe masking should be uh, extended beyond the March uh, deadline, at which point it's it's supposed to sunset because of the, pro- the, the filtering mechanisms in airline cabins and the studies that we've had now over the course of the last 18 months, which suggest that airlines and air travel is relatively safe when it comes to COVID transmission. And Dr. Fauci said, I don't think so. Uh, well, he, had, he was asked, if we'll ever get to a place where we can unmask in airplanes, he said, I don't think so. I think when you're dealing with closed spaces, even though the filtration is good, that you want to go the extra step when you have people, you know, you get the flight from Washington to San Francisco, it's well over five hours, even though you have good filtration system, I still think that masks are a prudent thing to do and we should be doing it. It's a perfect quote in all its many uh, varieties of what he's talking about here. First, the coastal elitism of a transatlantic flight, which is lovely. Second, the notion here that uh, you just don't, you can just mask forever in perpetuity. At no point did he ever say anything about COVID because COVID is ancillary to this policy recommendation. It dovetails with what um, Rochelle Walensky at the CDC had said in November about masking on airplanes, that it's not about COVID, that it's about preventing the transmission of common diseases, many of which are coronaviruses, including colds and flus. Um, So this is, an expansion of the terms of engagement here, the COVID mitigation protocols to, to just be standard, a standard of life that didn't exist since the advent of commercial air travel that we're just supposed to accept and internalize and observe because it's maximally beneficial from a public health standpoint. I, I think it's an important quote also because it, it points out, you know, we've been sort of criticizing the pu- public health officials for continuing to seem to approach this as if the goal is COVID zero. And I don't think that's the goal. The goal is COVID ad infinitum. It's COVID forever with harsh measures in place indefinitely. It is, they're not actually talking about getting the the cases down to zero, which is in and of itself uh, an unrealizable goal. They're talking about coexisting with it but not thriving with it. Um, so Jared Polis, who is the governor of uh, Colorado, was on Meet the Press this weekend. And I want to find his quotes because he's the guy who said a couple of weeks ago, you know, look, if you want to go, you know, what did he say? He said, you know, if you want to go around without a jacket in the winter and get pneumonia, that's your business, right? Um, and it was like, oh, my God, he's gone off on his own. You know, he's crazy, <laughs> whatever. Um, but uh, here's here's what Polis said, okay? Um, he said, I, I think we want to address the unvaccinated with facts first and foremost, but also with compassion and love. 
the governor told host Chuck Todd. They are often victims of misinformation, and we need to do our best to get the very best information in front of them that they need to protect themselves and their family. Um, but here's here's what he said about masking. He said uh, he had said it's people's own darn fault if they get frostbite because they don't wear a jacket, and that's an analogy to COVID if you don't get vaccinated. And he said. I think it's really important that our leaders, whether they're governors, mayors, local influencers, lead with facts rather than fear. People just don't react well to this ongoing environment of fear for two years. People need to keep themselves safe with the individual freedom and local control that we deserve. That's where we are at this point. Um, and he is the only Democratic politician that I'm aware of who has decided that he is not going to be part of this phalanx of COVID hawkishness. And it's interesting because he's a relatively liberal guy, uh, very rich, came into politics uh, relatively late in life uh, after making his fortune. Um, I am wondering whether he is charting some kind of an interesting political course for himself. We keep talking about 2024, right? And can Biden run and all of that? And here is Polis and I, you know, who knows whether there's any lane like this in the democratic race, but he's saying, I believe in individual freedom. Uh, I think everyone needs to get vaccinated. Um, I don't think that fear is a good strategy. And uh, I am the governor of a purple state. And I'm trying to figure out how best to talk to my people and how best to govern uh, in a very difficult situation. And again, he's the only one in the Democratic Party talking this way. And he is in a state that, you know, is like one of those bellwethers where it could go either way. Politics are very shifting and unstable. Um, and uh, is there really not going to be any other Democrat who talks like this? I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, the scare tactics of the last week, or it's not even tactics, it's just sort of like existential fear in the air that is driving everybody insane is very hard to very hard to sort of pull yourself out of and talk the way we're talking here. There are lots of people who are going to think that we're crazy and that we're sounding like crazy people. But I'll give you an example. Yesterday I went up, I was in Times Square. I went to a box office to look to buy tickets to a show during the Christmas break for the show Moulin Rouge. Walk up, there's a sign taped to the door. It says, matinee canceled today. That's 1,800 people. It's a huge theater, 1,800 people. I go into the box office. I say, what happened? He said, they just put the sign up. I don't even know. He said, I don't even know why it's canceled. And as a result, on Thursday, I got because people are also freaked out, I got like seventh row center seats for the third for the Thursday show because people had already canceled because of this. Uh, on Friday night, uh, somebody had food poisoning at the show company, threw up backstage, and they canceled the rest of the show. Vomiting is not a symptom of COVID. Vomiting is a symptom of stomach flu or food poisoning, not of COVID. They canceled the show five minutes into the show. They were showing something else last week. And after the audience had been seated at five minutes to eight, they sent them all home. 
uh, a show called Midnight Sun. I'm only using this as an example. I know people are going to say, oh, I don't go to Broadway. Well, it's just talking about New York. There's a show called Midnight Sun. Uh, sent out a text saying, we are canceling our performances this week because one of our cast members was exposed to somebody who had COVID. Hasn't tested positive for COVID, but was exposed to somebody who had COVID. I'm not saying this is in, in weird ways. This is worse than 2020 because, of course, we we have all these mitigation measures. We have, and we also have, if you have it, we have monoclonal antibody treatments, and we're going to have that Pfizer pill, if assuming the FDA ever approves it, and all of that. We are back. We are now in madness territory here. People are behaving as though a a a, a, a variant that has yet to register a single death in the United States attributed to it. Yes, case numbers are rising exponentially. It appears no one has died from it yet. Presumably at some point people will die from it simply because if the case numbers are exponentially large, just like people die of the cold, someone will die of this too. But it's been three and a half weeks. We have two data points now that suggest there is some incentive in the press to acknowledge this manic paranoia that has overtaken. And it is, it's just paranoia that has overtaken society. One in the Washington Post talking about a a GAO report, the Government Accountability Office, which opens with the following sentence, quote, the pandemic is potentially driving another crisis related to its effects on behavioral health with people experiencing new or exacerbated behavioral health symptoms or conditions. That's a very clinical way of describing paranoia. Um, In the New York Times this morning, there is a very similar piece that is much more cultural headlined. Is that a sniffle, a cold or is it COVID? The subheadline in New York City, the slightest runny nose has people canceling holiday gatherings and lining up for for hours outside coronavirus testing centers. And my favorite paragraph from the story, quote, many cannot shed the overwhelming anxiety they faced in the the face of COVID, a pathogen that has killed nearly 800,000 Americans, even when tests and retests have shown that they actually have a more mundane illness. Um, if you can't distinguish symptomatically COVID from a more mundane illness, the distinctions are academic. I want to just, just to give you a sense of how I'm not like, a, I'm not a lunatic in the other direction. My son had a cold last week and was sort of somewhat miserable. And then it turned out a friend of his attested positive, though we hadn't been with the friend till since Sunday. So on Saturday, we went to Times Square to one of these mo- there are mobile labs all over New York City, or there were, they're now overwhelmed. And so oddly enough, because they're overwhelmed, they're kind of closing down because uh, they don't have enough people to service them. So we go, the minute it opens at 9 a.m., it takes them half an hour to set up. We are basically standing in the cold rain for two hours to get to get a COVID test. We got two tests. We got the rapid antigen test and a PCR test. My son's 11. He, was, he didn't feel well as a, 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 to begin with. Um, complaining, wanted to go home. There's a McDonald's up the street. I told him he could sit in the McDonald's. Guess what? They closed all the seating in the McDonald's, in the giant McDonald's in Times Square because of COVID. So he could sort of stand in the order area for a while, but you couldn't sit down. Next to the McDonald's, there's an Old Navy and a Gap. The Old Navy and the Gap have closed down. They're not, they haven't shut. Like they're, they're still in business. They closed down because of COVID. 
Don't ask me why. So there was nowhere to stand where it wasn't freezing. We got, but I thought, okay, we sort of have to do this. He's got a friend who got it. He's got cold symptoms. I'm sure it's fine even if he has it. So he didn't have it, but it was prudent to check it. And it's interesting because it was a giant pain to check it. Two hours in the cold rain, like with a with a kid with a cold. Interesting opportunity cost question, no? Particularly if the variant turns out to be weak, like as it appears to be weak. Wouldn't it be so if he had it, so what? So should he have had to stand two hours in the cold or me, like just to find out that he had the Omicron variant, which he would get over? That's that's what's going to be interesting to know in the next couple of weeks. With that, let me uh, take a pause here to talk to you about the X chair. Once again, you can still get one, I think, before the holidays that x chair the most comfortable ergonomic chair you've, you'll ever use and the coolest looking piece of furniture you'll ever own uh, with its patented lmx technology that doubles as a massage chair and can either cool or warm your back and your office chair do that i don't think so now is the perfect time to purchase one uh a gift that keeps on giving you comfort and joy every day or all, all year long uh so x chair will sit let you save $100 off just by purchasing it at xchaircommentary.com. Now that's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com. X chair is a 30 day guarantee of complete comfort. You can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and save xchaircommentary.com. And let me also talk to you about, sorry, because I am having computer troubles here. Uh, Aura, because the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade. But security systems have stayed mostly the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help you protect your online accounts, finances, devices, and more. And its protection goes well beyond your credit card, all in one easy to use app. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name. It's all in one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. It's easy to set up. All plans come with $1 million bucks in identity theft insurance to help you recover your stolen funds and experience U.S.-based customer support that's got your back. This is a new type of security service that protects all your online information and devices with one simple subscription, with an easy online dashboard and alerts sent straight to your phone, Aura keeps you in control and guides you through solving any issues for a limited time. Aura is offering our listeners up to 40% off plans when you visit Aura.com slash commentary. Go to Aura.com slash commentary to get complete protection and savings of up to 40%. That's A-U-R-A.com slash commentary. Uh, so we are going to say goodbye to you until tomorrow when I hope we can talk about something other than Build Back Better and Omicron. But my guess is we're probably going to talk about Build Back Better and Omicron because people are going to continue to be crazy about Build Back Better and even crazier about Omicron. But maybe we'll come up with another depressing topic like Russia taking the Ukraine and us doing nothing about it or China taking Taiwan and us doing nothing about it or something like that. Anyway, just to keep up with the crushing morosity in the holiday season, for Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.